wonderful to be with you this morning. I'll tell you a bit of my story. My father grew up in a Jewish home in the pre-war Europe, before the Second World War. When the Nazis took control, they fled. He and his mother and brothers came to the US as refugees. At that time, he was following the Jewish faith. Someone put a copy of the New Testament in his hands, and his last name was Levi, started with L, so he began reading the book of Luke. He, he found that Jesus bound up the broken heart and set the captives free. And he was so inspired by that, he wanted to learn more about this Jesus character. Ultimately became a, a Messianic Jew, a follower of Jesus. He married my mother, who was not Jewish, and I grew up going to church. I didn't like church. It was a little, well, restrictive for me. And I was bright and thought I knew more than most people there. And as soon as I could stop going, I stopped. Went to medical school. And God was not particularly popular in my medical school class. I'm not sure how it was in your schooling. But Jesus was even less popular. And I think it's because, well, we're young. Most of us are handsome, beautiful, wealthy families. My family wasn't particularly wealthy, but most of my classmates were. You don't have any illnesses to speak of, and so you don't really imagine you're ever going to need God. And besides sort of needing God or faith, it just seemed a little bit weak. It just seemed like that wasn't what the cool people did, what the people who were really intelligent needed. Well, I didn't want to need anything anyone else didn't need. So I, I'd say, tabled my faith. I, I had some. I had gone to church early, but I just didn't think it was that important. I had a poor relationship, though, with my dad. And I, I recall, you know, your relationship with God has a lot to do with your relationship with your earthly father. Your brain sets up a template, this God that you can't see. I mean, you have to use your imagination. Where do you get that imagination? Well, you get it from your experiences. <coughs> oh, I know what authority figures are like, people who are hard to please, very critical, high standards. As soon as I can get away from them, I try. I wonder if that describes any of your stories. Because whatever your template, whatever image you have of God, that's probably one of the most important images in your life. And if you don't unwind that, because whatever you think God is like, he's not like that. He's much better. He's much more beautiful. He's much more kind, much more patient. So I went to medical school, I came out, 
And I believed that if I could do neurosurgery full-time, high risk, I went into the most difficult specialty, vascular neurosurgery, surgery on the blood vessels of the brain, life or death. I wanted my life to be like a movie. I wanted it to be just like a movie. Oh, and it was. Very dramatic. Highs, lows, a lot of drama in the ER, drama before and after surgery, heroic saves. <coughs> and it was after I got out into practice that God got my attention. I was doing more and more difficult cases. I was doing bypass operations into vessels of the brainstem. Very few people could, could do that surgery. And I, I wanted to show that I could do what the best in the world could do. Right out of my training, I was flown to Paris to operate. And I came back, and I did this bypass operation on a woman who was 55 with a giant aneurysm in the middle of her brain on the basilar artery. So the bypass was successful. I sewed into the brainstem vessels. And then another, that was an 11-hour operation, another six hours to, to block off the aneurysm, a second stage of the operation. It was technically successful. But she developed a blood clot, and she died the next day. And after 17 hours of surgery, I, I was face to face with failure. I never asked that woman if she was ready to die, if that was even on her radar. It certainly wasn't on mine. I wanted this to be successful so that I could present this case at a meeting, so that I could have the stage to show that I was able to do what anyone could do. <coughs> well, as God would have it, usually, if you don't get the message the first time, other, other things may come along. And so while I was reeling from that incident, in the social arena, I began having a, a bit of a problem. The girl that I liked, now I wouldn't have told her that I liked her. That wasn't really my style. But, well, I better back up a minute. I, everything I learned about relationships, I learned from James Bond. <laughs> Dad and I would watch James Bond with my brothers, and that's really all of the counseling I got about handling women. And so I believed that the worse you treat a woman, the more that she will love you. And I couldn't get that to work for me. <laughs> so this woman, would you know, had actually started dating another doctor who wasn't nearly as talented as I was, hadn't operated in Paris. I was dumbfounded. I could not believe that she would date someone less talented than I was. 
but there were some things I had to learn. And so with that, with the pain of that rejection, well, what happens when neurosurgeons don't get their way? We get angry. And typically, we blame other people. It's the nurse's fault. It's the anesthesiologist's fault. It's anyone's fault but mine, because I'm at a certain level. Can't be my fault. It has to be someone else's. Well, I blamed my dad. It was his fault. He never told me about relationships. And besides, he told me that if I was the best, I would be happy. I did everything I could to be the best, and I now suddenly wasn't very happy. And so I wrote him letters, angry letters. And he never responded, which only made me angrier. I think many of our parents, they don't have the emotional level, the emotional reserve, the emotional maturity to respond to accusations that they can't do anything about now, except say that they're sorry. So I was angry. And I called my mother, and I said, Mama, I was complaining about my father. He never was very critical. He didn't really <coughs> seem to enjoy me growing up. Didn't teach me much of the things that I really needed to know about life. And after venting for a while, she said something I'll never forget. She said, David, you need to forgive your father because you've hurt people and you need to be forgiven. And I thought, that's not why I called her. <laughs> I was hoping for some sympathy, someone to back me on this, and she just told me these powerful words of truth. Although, I didn't really receive them as truth because, well, wait a minute. I'm the one who has the mess of a life here. Shouldn't he be apologizing to me? But that second part about me hurting people and needing to be forgiven, well, that made sense. That's what happens, isn't it? We get offended. And then, well justified, we will go on and do the same thing to others. Not even thinking about it. Total blind spot. That is the way life works. It's the way the brain works. It was done to you. The most natural thing in the world is to pass it along. So when I hung up the phone that night, I said, OK, God, I, I forgive my father. And I need to be forgiven. Now, I didn't know exactly what either of those things meant completely. I would say the forgiveness process began there. It has been a long process. My father passed away in 2001. And although at that point I was able to make some amends. I was able to listen to him. Never had the close emotional connection I wanted, but I was able to, to call him on the phone, to 
talk about the computer, the car, whatever he wanted to talk about. It wasn't all about me. When I forgave my dad, and I say it was the beginning of the process, because every six months probably I'd have to forgive him for something else. I'm still forgiving my father when I see things in my life, in my marriage, thinking, where did I get this? Oh, I know. It's from my dad. I'm going to forgive him. God, would you reparent me? Would you tell me what the truth is about how to treat a woman, how to treat people, what the meaning of life is really about? Because that's what I want to know from your point of view. But when I forgave my father, it sort of unhooked this need to be famous. I also began reading about Jesus. I also began reading the Bible. I'd heard about the stories. It's interesting how the brain <coughs> believe You believe what you want to believe, and your brain makes it true for you. doesn't mean that it is true. It just means that's what you want to be true. And it was, not, it was not good news to me for Jesus to be the Messiah when I was in medical school. That was not my social circle. That was not a popular theme. So my brain said, well, I'm not so sure that's true. I didn't want to believe it. It wasn't good news. So whenever I meet people who say, oh, that's, that's true for you but not for me, I say, well, is it good news to you? Because if it's not, it's pretty natural that your brain's going to bring in anything that supports your position and reject anything that doesn't. Oh, we, we imagine ourselves very, very logical, but we're full of bias, absolutely full of bias. As I began to learn about Jesus, I learned that I thought Jesus was weak as a neurosurgeon. He didn't have much to say to me. He was kind to you know, lepers and poor people, and always see him holding a sheep or an animal. It's very, very just soft and nothing really to add to my career. You see, I loved people, or I thought I did, but I loved beautiful people, wealthy people, intelligent people, and people with very complex aneurysms that I could fix and present at meetings. <laughs> Those are the people I loved. I, I, but I, Jesus loved everybody. He loved people who could do nothing for him. He, he, he loved people who turned him in to the police. I couldn't do that. I wanted to be like that. And I began at that point to be a follower of Jesus. It took some time, but I began reading the scriptures and I began growing in my faith and realizing that my faith and my practice were fairly separate. Oh, I was very nice to people at the hospital, but I would never want anyone to really know that I had a faith because people often think people that have faith are simple or stupid or less intelligent somehow, less sophisticated than the rest of us. 
I didn't want to be in that group. But I found myself in a dentist chair one day. I needed a filling replaced. And the dentist pulled out that three-inch needle, as dentists do. And I tensed up a bit. Where needles are concerned, I, I believe it's more blessed to give than to receive. <laughs> and you know, how, you know how dentists do. They try to hide it. They hold it down low or they behind their shoulder. But he could see that I was tensing up a bit. And so he, he just put his hand on my shoulder. He knew I had some faith. And he said, God, guide my hands. Bless David. I don't know what he said exactly, but I remember a peace came over me. You see, when you are afraid, when someone comes at you with a needle or a scalpel or a letter from a lawyer, whatever it is that gives you fear, immediately God is gone. You are all alone. He's abandoned you. Fear is a very powerful chemical to the brain. It triggers everything that is non-relational. And if someone could remind you that God was with you at that moment, they would do you a tremendous service. Well, the shot still hurt a bit, but not as much, because you know that <coughs> fear makes everything worse, especially pain. And on my way home that day, I sort of heard this inner voice. I wasn't used to hearing the voice of God, but I heard this voice. It's clearly not mine. and said, I think you should pray for your patients. I quickly said, oh, no, no, that's a special like, gift that dentists have. They're very, very <laughs> dispensation. They're very blessed in that way. Now, I've got some serious surgery. I wouldn't want to I mean, there's a lot of reasons I would not want to pray. I mean, what if people thought I was trying to push my faith on them? What if people thought I was actually you know, studying for the, the priesthood or the ministry or something? Or, you know, what if, what if I pray and, and, and the surgery goes badly? Maybe I'll damage someone's faith. Probably, perhaps the worst of all is what if people think I'm praying because I don't know what I'm doing? <laughs> Didn't get a good night's sleep last night. Then I heard again that inner voice. If you're concerned about being misunderstood, I can promise you at some point you will be, because Jesus was. But you still need to do the right thing. Hmm, was Jesus misunderstood? Oh, tremendously. Did nothing but good. They hated him. They hated his goodness. They hated what he said just in his life, how it reflected on them. They hated anything that didn't support what they wanted to believe. So I made this deal. I said, okay, God, I will pray. I will ask the next patient if they want to pray. And I remember coming up the, the stairs to the OR that next Tuesday. My knees were shaking. You see, everything about surgery is trying to limit the variables, try to decrease the amount of things that are unsure about what's going to happen. And adding prayer was a huge variable. I was no longer in control. 
this was a out of control situation. And so I, I went up to the, the gurney there between the, those little thin curtains they have in pre-op, and I, I'm trying to think of when am I going to pray for this woman. Mrs. Jones had an aneurysm surgery. Her two daughters were there with her. Well, there was a nurse there, and there was absolutely no way I was going to pray in front of a nurse. <laughs> I mean, I had spent seven years in this hospital. I had a reputation, and I knew as soon as I would start to pray, they would talk about me in the nurse's lounge, and that was a lot of fear about what people would think of me. Well, I answered all of Mrs. Jones' questions, and the nurse wouldn't leave, so I decided I would have to pray for someone else, and I left her bedside. That wasn't part of the deal I made with God that I was going to pray publicly. But I went to the nurse's station. I picked up the phone and pretended I was on the phone. And I kept watching over there until the nurse left. And I hung up the phone. And I started walking over there. And just as I did, here came the anesthetist. And I turned right back around. And I went back to the nurse's station. And then I was afraid that they would come and take her to surgery, the transport team. And so as soon as he left, I scurried over to her bed, took a quick glance on the other side of the very thin curtain to make sure there weren't any doctors or nurses over there. And I said to her, I saw from her details that she had listed Protestant as her faith. And I said, Mrs. Jones, would, would you like me to say a prayer for you, for your surgery? And she looked at me and she looked up at her two daughters, and they sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, sure, OK. And just like the dentist had done for me, I put my hand on her shoulder, and I said a very short prayer. Father, thank you for Mrs. Jones. You made the vessels in her brain, and you can help me to fix them. And I ask you for wisdom and for skill and for success in this surgery. In Jesus' name. Amen. Very short, very simple. I looked up, and Mrs. Jones has tears coming down her face. And so, so do her two daughters. And I'm thinking, the same thing has happened to them that happened to me. This, there's a power that's transmitted when you bless someone by reminding them that God is with them. And then I realized that three crying women were more than I could handle. <laughs> and so I did what neurosurgeons do. I patted her on the hand, and I left it, left it for the nurses to deal with. <laughs> Hit the automatic switch, and out I went. And I had more joy at that surgery than I have ever had at a previous surgery. Because sort of this unspoken godlike status that people give physicians, especially surgeons. But it's not true. We need God just as much as everyone else. And when I was able to say, you may think that I'm God, but I'm not, but I'll be glad to talk to him with you if, if you'd like. It was, the word is authenticity. This is, this is the truth. I'm very good at surgery, but I'm not God. 
and I need his help. And so do you. And if this will bless you, this is something I want to do for you. I'm not going to push prayer on people, but if it's something that would be a blessing to you, I don't want to withhold that from you. Like I don't withhold sleeping pills from people just because I don't want them to to stay on them too long. It's there if you want to ask for it, and if you don't need it, then that's up to you as well. You're welcome to refuse. Surgery went well. Her two daughters came back to me and said, thank you so much for praying with our mother. It gave her such peace. Thank you. And again, I felt that God was saying to me, you're on the right track now. You finally decided to bring me into the OR, to bring me into your relationships, into the exam room. Now, some people don't want God in the exam room. They, they want just you because something about God in their past has triggered them, has They felt judged, they felt condemned, and so if you bring up God or anything like that, immediately they're going to feel you're judging them. Well, that's not my intention. But just because something doesn't help a certain group of people, but it does help another group of people, I mean, we prescribe medications all the time that don't work for some people. And some people, They take them. It works very well. As long as this is not your agenda, as long as you are not insisting that someone pray with you, but you're asking, would this be a blessing to you? Often I will say, many people enjoy this. If it's an elective case, I'll say, I always offer to pray with people before their surgery. If that's something you would like, I'll need you, to, need you to ask me for that on the day of your surgery. That way they go home, they think about it. If it's something they like, they ask you for it. Often the patients will say right there, oh, I want that. And some of them won't. Totally up to them. And that way you get to bless the people that want the blessing, and those that don't, you, you don't. You can take a spiritual history. You could find out. You could, I used to have a checklist. They could check if they wanted prayer or just gave me some idea of where they were. I'm not there to offend people. But I also don't want to pretend that this is not important to me and to a lot of my patients. And the research shows that the, that the more serious the surgery, the more people want prayer. The more serious your hospitalization, the more inclined they are to want prayer, not just from the chaplain, but even from their doctor. Many of us are uncomfortable with that. We're afraid that our level of spirituality may not be as advanced as someone else's. You know, you don't have to be afraid to say a very short prayer. One, two lines. It blesses the people that you that you want to bless and they want that blessing. You know, I still had trouble praying in front of the nurses for quite a while. I was actually enjoying so many people that wanted 
a prayer before their surgery, but it took me so long to have to walk back and forth to wait for the nurses to leave. I really wasn't enjoying that. And I remember hearing that voice at one point saying, what are you afraid of? I said, well, I'm afraid that the nurses are going to talk. Everyone knows that nurses talk. I'm afraid that people will think of me as one of those wackos who prays for people. Well, are you? Well, yes, I am. But I don't want people to, to think about me like that. I've got a reputation. Then that word came again, authenticity. If you really believe this, this is what you believe. This is who you are. Why are you so afraid that people will actually know who you are? Well, it's simple. There are economic ramifications for people knowing who you are. There are potential political situations for people knowing who you are or what you believe. Oh, there's a cost to it. And Jesus mentions that, doesn't he? We like to dismiss that, but there is a cost. But it was at that point I decided I needed to be able to pray, even if a nurse was there, if the patient wanted that. And so I did. And after I prayed, I remember walking away, and a nurse came saying, Doctor, can I speak with you? I was terrified. Looked at my shoes, you know. We've noticed you're praying, she said. This was about six weeks after I had started. And I, I was silent. And she said, you know, a lot of us would love it if you would invite us to pray with you. We have a faith, but we, we're scared to say anything. But if you pray, then we can pray. It was a beautiful time when I could pray with nurses who wanted to pray. You know, I just want to pause there, and I want to give you a minute to think about where you are with authenticity and where you are with forgiveness. I've talked about both of those things this morning. <coughs> forgiveness and authenticity. Is there any tune-ups that you need, maybe even this weekend, in both of those areas? Could God be speaking to you through this story? You know, it's so rare in this world that we actually get some silence. Always have a phone going, always have a music going, a video. I wonder if you can find some time for silence to, to listen to your own heart. What are some of those wounds that need to be tuned up? What are some of the ways that you might be getting bored in your spiritual life and God has a challenge for you? If you let him walk with you, he will help you with that. He'll help you be the man or the woman that he designed you to be. A man of courage, a woman of courage and heart. That's what he wants for you. Not pretending, not hiding. You know, authenticity also requires humility. Because when you make a mistake, and you will, 
you'll need to apologize. If there's anything that I've learned from Jesus in these last years, it is humility. Something our medical system, something our society does not look on with kindness. How are you with your humility and your family relationships and your friendships when someone offends you? 